Happy to be back, and I pray that I'll be a blessing to you today. We are resuming our series on how to read and study the Bible. <clears throat> I hope that you have been edified by and have enjoyed the video talks that we've been looking at from John MacArthur the past three weeks. And you should have noticed that he talked a lot about the same concepts that we've been talking about in our own Sunday School series, how to interpret or not to interpret the Bible. He might have used a slightly different terms or Whenever he laid out a process, he used a slightly different set of steps, but really we're talking about the same thing, making sure that we're fair and that um, we are accurate when we're interpreting the Bible. Today, I want, I want to do something that I told you the last time I spoke with you, something that I wanted to do with you, and that is I want to walk through the process of interpretation with you using a passage from the Bible. I want to show you the whole thing. Now, of course, that takes a really long time, so we are going to do a somewhat abbreviated version of that. And I'm going to supplement with some of the things that I've done on my own to help you with some of the things we won't have time to do right now. But I'd like to walk you through the process of interpretation. I want to see what it looks like. What kind of resources do you use? What kind of questions do you ask? <clears throat> Remember, as we come back into this, what is at stake? Well, let me ask you, what is at stake when it comes to interpreting the Bible? Yes, truth. Truth is at stake, right? And that's one of the things that um, hopefully has been on your mind the past couple of weeks as we talk about um, those who inaccurately interpret the Bible, is that they're sacrificing truth. And that leads to all sorts of problems, not, um, not the least of which that it dishonors God, who is the God of truth. But what else is at stake when it comes to interpreting the Bible? What does the truth of the scriptures do for us? Yes, yeah, Steve. Yeah, it's completely equipping for all the things that we need to do. And what's also in there, though might not be specifically stated in, that, uh, in the verse from Timothy, that it gives us Joy. The joy of God comes from his scriptures. He wants us to have his joy. He wants us to rejoice in him. But we can't do that unless we are able to study the Bible and study it rightly. So this isn't merely an academic thing or this isn't merely a practical thing. It's a, it's a pleasure thing that you get to experience the joy of God when you interpret the Bible uh, accurately and diligently. And that's what we want to do. Uh, let's... Briefly review a few concepts, since it has been a little while. <clears throat> review some concepts that have been key to our series. The first of which, what is the method for Bible study that we've been emphasizing from our first lesson? Yeah, Greg. Very good. You, you gave uh, the questions that essentially go along with our steps. What does it say? What does it mean? And how do we apply it? Or if we could put that into three different words, which words would they be? Emma. Very good. Observe, interpret, and apply. And when we observe, we're looking at the text. We're just trying to see what's there. As Craig said, what does it say? Then interpret, what does it mean? We're trying to recapture what did the original author communicate to the original audience. As MacArthur emphasized, and I think he said it last week, in his video, that you want to recreate the situation and put yourself in it. 
rather than the Bible being put in our situation, we're trying to put ourselves in the Bible situation so that we can understand what they were needing to understand at that time. And then apply, we take it out of that time period and we say, well, what does that look like in my own day? How does it work for me and for others? Observe, interpret, apply. Very good. We spent a lot of time talking about observation, and we're coming to the end of our talking about interpretation. And last time I spoke with you, I talked about a process of interpretation. There were five steps, an order to how you actually come to understand the meaning of a passage. And they all started with C. This is, a, again, using the resources from uh, the book we've been going through, Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks, Howard and William Hendricks. And he gives five C's of interpretation. What is the first C that we look at when we're trying to look at the meaning of a passage? Steve? Context? Almost. Not context, but content. Yes, content. Or content, sorry. We're essentially making sure we've done the observation. What did it say? We want to actually see what the text said. Then we go to context. And what is that, Steve? Can you be more specific? Um, <laughs> Roy, can you add to what Steve said? Yes, very good. So tag team effort there with Steve and Roy. That is, you are looking at the rest of the framework. How is the, the passage framed by um, what comes around it? But also, as Roy mentioned, the rest of Scripture. What comes right before and right after a passage? What appears in the rest of that book? And then uh, what about the rest of the Scripture? In the context step, we're specifically talking about what appears right before and after, the immediate context, and then the context of the book. In the comparison step, which is the... Oh, I gave it away. Sorry, it wasn't even on there. <clears throat> the third step is the comparison step. And that's when we're actually looking at the rest of Scripture. We're saying, all right, here are the things I see in the text. What are some other relevant scriptures that can help me interpret this? As Roy mentioned, scripture is often the best, maybe not even is often, scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. And we have the advantage of having a lot of other scriptures to help us interpret any one particular scripture. So content, context, comparison, what's the fourth step? Another C. In the fourth step, this is where we start going to some resources outside the Bible. We'll grab a Bible handbook, Bible dictionary, in order to rediscover what? Concordance is a resource that we would actually use in the comparison step. That's a way that we can find other resources or other texts in the Bible. But not so much a concordance in the culture step. Oh, I gave it away again. What are we looking for in the fourth step? What do I mean by that? Ah, I got you. No, it's good. Exactly. We're trying to look at what were the things that we can't see in the Bible. What was the, the political climate? What was, the historic, what was happening historically? What did they do in their culture that might be a little different than ours? How did they um, view certain activities or 
What was the religious context at the time? We want to recreate the scene with any resources that we have that we can't get from the Bible. This is not to make those, that's not to say that the Bible is not sufficient or that those things are superior to the Bible. They're just going to add to our understanding of the Bible and fill in some of the cultural details that we wouldn't otherwise know. Right, so content, context, comparison, culture, and then the last step. What's the last thing we do? The last C. I know it's been a little while. It's very important that it happened last, as you can see my question there. What would the last step be? Were you about to say something, Steve? It, it's not the C word, but yes, we're going to be looking at commentaries because what are we trying to do with our findings? The last step is called the comparison step because we want to see what did other interpreters, or what conclusions did other interpreters come to? We want to compare what we found with what they found. Now, it's important that we do this last, and why is that? Rob, that's exactly right. We want to be as objective as possible when reading the text. And if we, at the beginning or at the middle, we know other points of view, we're going to have a hard time trying to separate our own point of view from what other people have already asserted. Once we've done the research ourselves, we can more fairly come to the opinions and the interpretations of others, and we can say, all right, this is correct, but this is incorrect. I can't agree with this person's interpretation here because of the evidence that I've already discovered. So it's important that we do that last. And it's a, it's a great way for us to check our work, see if somebody's pointed out something that we didn't see. So consultation is the last step. Well, good. So I think that those concepts are in your minds. We want to walk through that process today. Now, depending on how much time we have, we'll see how far we can get through the process. We're going to try and use this process on a passage of scripture, a kind of decent-sized passage of scripture. I'm going to do each one of these things. We're going to examine the content, the context. We're going to compare it with other scriptures. We'll take a look at the culture, and then we'll also see what other interpreters have said when it comes to the meaning of that passage. Now, I don't know if you can see, but I have a whole bunch of books up here. These are actually the, some of the different resources that we would use, or actually I did use when I prepared this lesson. Like, here's an exhaustive concordance. Here's my Bible dictionary. Here's a MacArthur's commentary. <clears throat> so these are all different things that we're going to be, that we would be using, these types of resources as we go through, um, as we go through and look at the text. What text are we going to look at? Well, it's going to be in Revelation. <clears throat> Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. Now, I have the text up here, but obviously you can use your own Bibles. I would recommend, if possible, that you don't use a steady Bible for this. Please grab a pew Bible, because that way you'll be less tempted to look at the steady notes, because we don't want to look at those until the end. <clears throat> so, our text is Revelation, and uh, let's pray for God's blessing on this time and ask for his uh, illuminating uh, power. Over this, over this lesson. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Father, I thank you for this time. and Lord, I praise you for being uh, the God of truth. Thank you, Lord, that you are so trustworthy and you just wanted to emphasize that again and again and again and again and again through the scriptures. 
And Lord, forgive us where we don't trust you. Forgive us, God, for where we, we want to rely on ourselves or we don't think that we ought to seek you, even though you've, you've just showed us how great you are and you've showed how true everything that you've said is. So God, I pray that your spirit would equip me, Lord, as I speak and equip them as they listen and as they observe and as they think themselves. Lord, give us understanding of this passage. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would also help us to apply it. I pray it in, the, in your name. Amen. Okay. So if you haven't yet, turn your Bibles to this passage, Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. What should we do first? Right, we've got we to do the content step. So what is that? What are we going to do, Steve? We've got to read it. So let's do that. <clears throat> so I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, but you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so we're in the content step. We've just read it. Now what do we do? Can we move to the next step? There is still something we need to do in the content step. <clears throat> Remember, content is not just reading the text, but doing what to it? Say that again? That's right, Greg. We need to observe the text. So let's do that. You've got it in front of you. You hopefully have it open, open before you. What are some things that you notice when you look at this text. Remember, we're not really trying to interpret it just yet, but what are some things that you notice? Amy, how do you know this is Jesus speaking? Okay, so your, your Bible might be giving you a little clue here, and then NASB also gives you another clue through the capitalization of some letters, amen, witness, and beginning. So, yes, that's a good observation. What else? to truly verify that, right. They, they've given us clues, the interpreters have, the ones who've actually translated our Bibles, but yes, you would have to look at context, which we will, but not yet. What else do you notice? Rob. Well, I, I noticed that it was first, so 
Good observation. Even though this is talking about the church of Laodicea, it says to the angel of the church of Laodicea. Good observation. What else? We need, we need plenty of observations. Lots of things that we can, we can just pull out and notice here. Steve, something else? What makes you say that? I know. Yeah. This is the very first word. I know your deeds. Verse 15. Yeah, so this person says, I, I have great knowledge of you and your deeds. Good observation. What else? Yeah, Roy. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yes, the tone is. This is not a. Uh, this is not like some other sections of scripture, like Philippians, where it's just like, ah, such happiness. No, this is. Uh, this is very. It's much more serious and an admonishing tone. I think that's good. Dwayne, you had something. Very good. Say that again. Okay. Exactly. That's a good observation. So this church, even though he's speaking to the angel at church, he's talking about the church, and he says, "I wish." that you were one way, but you're not. So yes, we do see that admonishing tone. What else? Remember, types of things that we can observe, things like grammar. Um, we can observe specific words. We can look for repetition. We can look for contrast. Do we see any of those things or other things in this passage? Yeah, Dan. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of the first person here. That's a good observation, Dan. Not only from the speaker, but he also he brings back a quotation from what um, his audience is saying. He, there's that quotation in the middle. You say... I am rich, et cetera, et cetera. So we do see a lot of that personal pronoun I here. What else? Yeah, Dwayne. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very good. So Dwayne is giving us a, a great observation here. These people are deceived. And that, that contrast, we do see a contrast here in the text because he say, I know. Here's what you say, but here's what you are. So there's a there's definite contrast there. And the people are deceived into what, to what they really are. More. More observations. Yes, Judy. Can you give me an example of that encouragement? Mm. Yeah, that's a great observation. He doesn't just say, you're terrible, and 
Judgment's coming on you. That, that would be a certain, that would be a very depressing message. But he does say that there is something that they can do. And what is it that they can do? Right? In the middle there, it says, um, or verse 19, be zealous and repent. And uh, there's even more encouragement later on, right? Because it's not just like there is something you can do, but what else is there in this text that would be encouraging? Yeah. Okay, there's definitely that, right? It says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So in spite of all this admonishment, he says this is, or this would indicate this isn't a sign that I hate you or that I'm, I, uh, I have no feelings towards you. This is actually out of love for you that I'm telling you this. That's good. And there's even more. What else would be encouraging in this letter, even though there's a really serious situation for the, in this church? Rob. Yeah, there's a promise, right? Not only is there something you can do, but if you do that thing, look at what you will receive. He says two different things. He says, I'm at the door, and I'm knocking. If anyone opens, I'll come in and dine with him. So there's that. And then he says, if you overcome, you will sit with me on my throne. So there's a promise of reward here. What else? These are good. Yeah, Shay. Hmm. Yes, that's, that's awesome. What a great, great insight. And it's even emphasized in the, I don't know if grammar is the right word, but not just the words themselves, but the way that they're repeated. Notice what he says, here's what you say. I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Something strike you about those phrases? They're all the same thing. It's like, I'm really rich, I've become rich, and there's nothing that I don't need. They really think that they are rich, that they are are, um, totally without need of anything. But in contrast, Jesus says, you are actually wretched and miserable, which is pretty extreme, but he adds that, and poor, and blind, and naked. So, yeah, very extreme difference in how they view themselves and what they really are. Really good. One more observation. One more, one more thing we can see here. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain that a little bit more, Veronica? You say maybe a warning. Right. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. Yes, very good. Right, right. This is not something to be ignored, right? If you have an ear, um, which hopefully we all do, but if you actually have the ability to use that ear, then you should listen to this. Not just listen and be like, oh, that was interesting. You should act on it, just like in the Gospels, right? So you're right. There's a, there's a tone of warning there. Dwayne, I did see your hand. One more thought. Yeah, that's a good observation. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So just to just repeat, he's pointing out that the speaker has the ability to provide for their extreme needs. But implied in that is that they have to actually seek it. What's interesting is that, and this would be something that you would do in the observation step if you had access to it. When you look at the Greek for this passage, the word for by is agar, uh, forgive me if I mispronounce this, but agarazo, which you may notice the, the root there, agora, which is the word for marketplace. And literally, it would mean go to the marketplace. It was just a synonym also to buy or to shop. But uh, there's that idea that you have to actually go out there. You have to actually go seek and, seek and buy something. So that's an interesting point there, Dwayne. There's more. Obviously, there's more that we can observe in this passage. And um, this is just to give you a sampling of the, the interpretation process. A few other things I want to point you to. Things that we might not even necessarily have an answer to right now, but maybe there are questions that are generated when we read this. First of all, I, I thought it was interesting that nobody mentioned it, but it says in the beginning, the beginning of the creation of God. Sounds like that could, that could be an important phrase. And certain people want, might want to take that phrase in a way that other people would not want to take that phrase. What does it mean that the speaker is the beginning of the creation of God? The word for beginning there is arche in the Greek, which we, we see in some English words like monarchy, which would be like uh, a certain type of government, arche having to do with rule, but it also has to do with beginnings. Arche like an archetype, like uh, the source, the, the very first character of this type. So you have the idea of beginning, but also rule in the term arche. That's one thing that we want to observe. Also, let's think a little bit about the, the use of the words cold and hot. First of all, they're repeated a number of times, right? It, it's like um, he doesn't just use the term lukewarm, but he keeps on saying either cold or hot, neither cold or hot. Let me ask you this. Would, no, what condition or what type of temperature would the speaker accept based on what he says here? So we have three kinds, right? We have hot, lukewarm, and cold. Which ones or one will the speaker accept? He would definitely accept hot or cold, right? He says, I wish that you were either cold or hot. 
And when he says, since you are neither hot nor cold, since you're not either one of these two that I would accept, this is an important observation. He indicates in the way that he's, he uses the terms cold and hot that he would, he would accept either of them, but not lukewarm. Uh, we already mentioned the, thing, the same thing about rich and poor, how they're extremely emphasized. But what is the main command given in this? Dwayne? Okay, that, that was, when he says buy and buy gold and, and buy salve and buy clothes, they're not literally buying anything, right? Yes, there is that, that's a good observation. There, the irony that, that Dwayne is bringing out. He just said that you're super poor, but he says that you can buy. There, you do need to buy something. That's really good. But what, is the, what does that buying actually, what is that buying? It's related to another command that appears here, which I would say is the main command of this. That's right, be zealous and repent. The main command is all about repenting, right? The main message to this church through the angel is to repent. These are good observations. Now, we've observed the content, and of course we could do more, but for, for what we can do right now, we've observed the content. What do we do next? Now we go to the context, right? And we're looking at the immediate context and the context of the book. So I'm going to help you a little bit with this. <clears throat> what comes right before this passage in this chapter? Yeah, Steve. It's a letter to another church, right? And in fact, there are several letters. There, there are a number of letters that are going to other churches, and they actually take up most of the content of chapters 2 and 3. But how did this letter writing really start? Let's actually get the scene here by going back to chapter 1. So turn your Bibles over to chapter 1. We'll get a little bit more background information provided by this book, and we'll get the scene here. And then we'll take a little bit more time to look at those letters. So scan those pages there of chapter 1 for a moment and tell me who is writing this book. I think I heard something. Who's our writer? John, yes. He identifies himself um, in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Very good. To whom is he writing? Seven churches in Asia. It's also in the same verse. Where is John? The island of Patmos. It says down there in verse 9. <clears throat> Why is he there? I heard something. He's in exile, and why? Why is he in exile? Did he commit a crime? Very good. So verse 9 gives us the, the whole, um, yeah, I think it's verse 9. Yeah. Your brother, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony, testimony of Jesus. So I know something about our writer. He's John. And this wouldn't be John the Baptist because we know that, that um, he died. So we're looking at the, uh, the Apostle John. 
And he's in exile. He's been persecuted, and he's been put on this island on Patmos. But he's sending a message to these seven churches which are in Asia. What happens to John while he's on Patmos? Which is what he relates to us. Roy. That's right. He receives a vision. Someone speaks to John. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and then I heard a voice. And the voice speaks to him. And now let's take a time to, to read this description, starting in verse 12. Look in, or actually, we'll start in verse 11. We'll start in verse 10. I was in the spirit, so this is Revelation 1.10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which had, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. So we're getting a little bit of the scene here, just a few questions. Who is it that John sees? This has got to be Jesus. And how do we know that? The name Jesus isn't there. Julie? Yeah. You can't be the first and the last God and also die and be forevermore unless you're Jesus Christ. So this has to be Jesus Christ. Very good. Now, there are a lot of descriptions here. Let's just try and summarize it. What adjectives would best summarize Jesus' appearance here? Awesome, yeah, that's a good adjective. What else? Bright, glorified. What else? Radiant. You definitely notice the glory here. What else? Frightening. Yes, I think that's a good adjective. Because he's got eyes of a flame of fire. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got feet that are glowing like um, molten bronze. And John's reaction is the fall. And Jesus says, don't, don't be afraid. So this is a glorious, powerful, bright, even fearsome depiction of Jesus here, appearance of Jesus. John is overwhelmed, but Jesus lifts him up and says, don't be afraid. So we're seeing some of the compassion and tenderness of Jesus at the same time. Now he tells John to do something. What is that? Write. Write to the seven churches. And it makes sense. The next thing that appears in this book 
are those mini letters to the seven churches. Now, those letters are going to be helpful for the way that we interpret the letter to Laodicea. So, I want you to take some time now, maybe three to five minutes, and I want you to actually read those letters. With an eye to how might there be some similarities or some differences between the letters to the other churches and the letter to Laodicea. Okay, Take a couple of minutes to read that now. It's, it's actually not that long. Just uh, chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Take a couple of minutes, and when you're finished, just look up at me. Okay, we're going to resume. If you didn't finish reading the section, that's okay. But hopefully, from the section that you were able to read, you still, still can observe some things. So, we're looking at the preceding context to our passage in Revelation 3.14. What are some things that you notice? Emma. Yes, that's a good observation. Um, the, every other church has at least one thing that's specifically appraised, but not in Laodicea. It's a good observation. What else? Yeah, Steve. Hmm. Yeah, so a couple of good observations there from Steve. But hopefully you notice there's a similarity in the organization of each one of these letters. It starts out addressing the angel of the church. Then some words describing the one who's speaking. And they're different, right? They're different for each church. And then we can, he gives his message to the church, but we can be even more specific. What's the first thing that he always starts with? Yeah, Roy. Yeah. He looks for something good. Usually the things that he commends them for come in the very beginning. And then what? Amy. Well, he does. And then right after that. Yeah, yeah. So then he, for most of them, he says, these are the things you're doing well. And then? Then what, then what comes in the letters? Well, there's definitely that too, but like for instance, if we look at the very first letter, Revelation 2, 1 to Ephesus, it starts out in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil, all these good things. Then verse 4, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Or if we look at the, uh, the next letter there, which goes to, or let me skip down to Pergamum. I know where you dwell, this is verse 13 in chapter 2, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you, because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, etc. So we see commendations, but then what? The things that he has to rebuke them for, right? There's a little bit of variance to that. There's like a, if you look at Sardis, there's a commendation that comes at the very end, a somewhat weak commendation where he says, some of you are actually believers, so he gives them that. But we do see that address to the church, qualifications about the speaker, things he praises them for, things he rebukes them for, and then 
There's that call to action. Usually repent, but sometimes there's another command. What's the other, if we could generalize it a little bit, what's the other command he gives? Specifically to Smyrna, Philadelphia, and to parts of the other churches. Persevere, right? Hold fast. Hold fast what you have until I come. Keep going. So those are the two main messages we see in the letters. Repent and persevere. What else do you notice? Oh, actually, I should finish up with the organization. Also connected in there are judgments and rewards, right? It says if you don't repent, here's what will happen. But if you do, here's reward. Here's reward waiting for you. And they are also somewhat different in each letter. Okay, so we do see a similarity in the organization. What else? Yeah, Julie. Yes, very good. Either the last line or right next to the end, he gives that message. Listen to what I say to the churches. Good. What else? Mm. 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 It's a good, good observation, Bill. Certainly, especially with Pergamum and Thyatira, there are false teachers identified in their midst. With Pergamum, he says, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And with Thyatira, he says, you have Jezebel. For the other churches that need to repent, I'm sure that there's some bad teaching in there too, but he doesn't necessarily identify that teaching. But yes, the call to repentance is coming back to what the faith really is and not paying attention to these false teachers. What else? That is correct. Yeah. And he says, you're going to experience more. There's a special period of persecution that's going to happen to you. But hold fast. I'll reward you. Smyrna and one other church does not get any condemnation. Which is the other one? Philadelphia. Very good. They are merely told to persevere. Yeah, Dwayne. That's a great observation, Dwayne. If there's ever a church that's opposite of Laodicea, it's got to be Smyrna. And that description even that you read, I know your poverty, but you are rich, in parentheses. That's going to tell us a lot, I think, um, of what is underlying their difference in behavior. And we'll bring that back into our own passage when we look at it. What else? Yes, Alan. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's really good, Alan. Um, 
just, just to repeat the idea that with Laodicea, just like with every one of the churches, there is a positive in, in that Jesus is giving them an opportunity to, uh, to come back to him. And even these churches that look like they're really seriously off, like Sardis, he still has an encouraging word, to, uh, encouraging word for them if they would repent. Like Sardis, he says, I know your works, but you're actually dead. I mean, you can't get much worse than that, right? If Jesus calls out your church for being a spiritually dead place. Then he says, wake up. Wake up and repent. There's still something you can do. Or there's at least something that parts of you can do. Even if the church were to dissolve, I still am going to be reaching out to part of you. So that's a good observation. One thing I want to, uh, or two things I want to point you to. Which churches seem to have the severest problems? We know Smyrna and Philadelphia don't have any problems identified. But which churches have the severest problems? Laodicea, I think, is one of them. And we'll come back to that. But which other ones? Thyatira, what is Thyatira's problem? They have Jezebel, who's a prophetess, and she's leading them astray, not only with false teaching, but false teaching that encourages immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, God does identify this as a, a terrible thing, a wicked thing, something that he does not want to abide, and he gives a warning. What's interesting about it, though, is that it's not really a, a warning on the whole church. Let's um, look, actually, at chapter 3. I think that's where Thyatira is, right? Or maybe it's chapter 2. I'm sorry. Chapter 2, around verse 20. This is where he calls out Jezebel. Verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservant astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill their, her children with pestilence, and the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. But I'll, and I will give each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call him, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. So even though he calls out Jezebel and any of those people associated with her and warns that judgment will come, to whom is the judgment coming? Just Jezebel, right? It's not on the whole church. I mean, certainly that whoever is involved in that, whatever portion of that church. But it doesn't say, I'm going to judge the church. He says, I'm going to judge those people in your church. And actually, we see the same thing in Pergamum. When Pergamum has a similar type of immoral teaching, he says, they better repent or else I'm going to war against them with the sword of my mouth. Not the church, but them. In contrast, if we look at Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea, the warning really goes to the whole church. What does Jesus threaten Ephesus with if the people do not repent? Which means what? Yes, that's right. Cheryl is making a great observation. He says, I will remove your lampstand. That's what he says to Ephesus. And we saw from the end of chapter 1, the lampstand is the church. The lampstand is symbolic of the church. So he says, I'm going to take out your lampstand. I'm going to get rid of this church because of the problem that you have. And with Sardis, he says, you better wake up or I'm going to come like a thief in the night. It's not just coming against some, but 
presumably against the whole church. And Laodicea too, there's a warning. It doesn't say, for those of you who are in, uh, in the sin here, I'm going to spit you out. No, he's just talking about the whole church. Because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out. Or when he says, I advise you to buy clothes so that your nakedness is not revealed. There's that warning that the nakedness can happen. So these three churches seem to have more severe problems. Even though they're maybe not so obviously severe, like immorality or idolatry, like in Thyatira and Pergamum, but God deals with them more severely. Why? What is the issue that seems to be tying each one of these churches together? You can't point to immoral acts in Laodicea, nor in Ephesus. But Jesus is so severe with them. Why is that? Amy. Yeah, I think that's, that's really it, right? The problem is on a deeper level in each one of these churches because their hearts are not right. You know, obviously, your heart is involved in any type of sin. But fundamentally, each one of these churches has a, has, a, has a problem in its heart. Ephesus has left its first love. Sardis is spiritually dead. Laodicea is lukewarm. And they each get these severe condemnations from Jesus. And the problem is, apparently, pervasive enough in the church that the whole church is in jeopardy. So this is important to notice. One final thing, and this is actually probably where we're going to need to stop today, because uh, it's important that we have all this in our background before we go back to, to interpret the meaning of the specific passage. We will come back to it. But I'm going to come back to something that Steve said. When he talks about the way or the introduction, giving descriptions of Jesus for each one of these letters. What do you notice about the phrases that Jesus uses to describe himself to each one of these churches? Because they're not the same. They're not the same for each church. Is there any rhyme or reason to why he uses those descriptions? Like for Ephesus, he opens with, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Is that related at all to anything he says to them? Did you want to answer, Steve? Mm, yeah. Ah, excellent. Yes, Steve, that's, that's really, really good. The way he describes himself is connected to what he's saying to each one of the churches, just as Steve said. So in Ephesus, he says, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands, and by the way, you better repent, or I'm going to remove your lampstand. And to Smyrna, he says, I'm the one who died and is alive. By the way, you're going to be persecuted. Be faithful unto death, because you'll be like me. Or 
in Pergamum, where they have this immorality problem. He says, I'm the one who has the sword that comes out of his mouth. And then he tells them, I'll war against those who don't repent with the sword of my mouth. And Thyatira, the eyes of fire, the feet of that molten bronze. And he says, you've got sin in your midst. I see it, and I'm going to deal with it. With Sardis, oh, let me see. <clears throat> with Sardis, hold on, let me find it again. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, or that one might not be quite as apparent, but without getting into all the details, seven spirits of God seems to be a description of God's omniscience, that he knows everything. And the very first thing he says is, I know your deeds, you have a name that you're alive, but I know what you really are. Right? You're dead. In Philadelphia, he says, I am the door, or I have the key to the door that no one can open or shut, and then he tells them, I put a door in front of you that no one can open or shut. And then, Laodicea. He starts with the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. What would we infer, or maybe this is obvious already, but what about that phrase, do we know, based on the context? Yes, yeah, Steve. Mm. Hmm. There's certainly a connection, and that's what I'm getting at here. There's a connection between that introductory phrase and what he's telling the church. And it might be very much like what he's saying with Sardis. In fact, I would assert that it is, right? Because they're saying a certain thing about themselves. Jesus says, I know what you really are. I'm the faithful and true witness. I have the right record. Or amen. We'll get into this a little bit more when we talk about the comparison step. But amen is the same word that Jesus uses in the Gospels when he says, verily, verily. Truly, truly. An amen is an affirmation of truth. He says, I am the amen. I am the truth. I'm telling you the truth about yourself. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about the beginning of creation. But you're seeing here, as we're looking to interpret the meaning of this text, we've already come to a number of conclusions. One is that Laodicea has a serious problem. And it's a problem that goes beyond the surface, really into their hearts. And like the other churches, it's so serious that if it's not dealt with, that Jesus wants to get, or Jesus warns that the church itself will be dissolved. We also see that even the descriptions he gives about himself are related to his message to that church. And the other things we'll get into, some of the specific things he says about being blind and naked, there's a purpose behind those things too. And they all are part of addressing the root issue of that church. We want to explore more. What is this lukewarmness? How did they get to be lukewarm? And then what can they do about it? So we'll explore more of that next time. We're out of time for today. But we've looked through the first two steps. And to be fair, the context that comes after Revelation 3 is the continuation of John's vision. He's taken into heaven, and he's seated before God, or he, he, before God's throne, and he sees a worship sequence happening there before more visions about what will happen in the last days. So we've looked at the context. Of course, there's more things we can pull out, but that will do for today. Next time, 
we'll, we'll talk about the next three steps. Comparison. What would the rest of the scriptures have to say about things like being the beginning or being the amen or being rich? We want to think about those things. Then culture. What can the dictionary tell us about Laodicea? Or what can uh, an atlas tell us about the location? Things like that. We want to consult some of those sources. And then in the consultation step, even before we get there, we want to synthesize that information, come up with our interpretation, and then compare it to what other people have concluded, people like MacArthur or Piper or others. So that's what we'll do. We'll continue that next week. Thank you for your participation. Let's pray as we close today. <clears throat> Holy Father, I thank you for your word. It's something, Lord, that especially with things that are harder to understand, Lord, it takes time. But even the things that seem relatively easy to understand, they are so enriched, Lord, when we actually explore the context and when we actually um, dissect some of the things that appear there, Lord. So continue to instruct us. I pray, Lord, this be something that we might even meditate on over this next week. And, Lord, make us ask the question and allow your spirit to answer for us, Lord, how we are similar to these churches, how our church is, or how we are personally, how we're similar or different. And God, if we need to repent of some of the things that these churches needed to repent, I pray that you would accomplish that. And Lord, help us also to persevere in that same message that you were giving each one of the churches. And indeed, it's all through Revelation. It's all about persevering for the sake of the reward. And the reward is ultimately of you. You are the reward. So God, be our reward today. Help us to see more of that and bless our fellowship time and the food that we eat and bless the proclamation of your word, and I pray that you would speak through it. I pray this in your name. Amen.